0: salvation we have to look at depravity in fact it's the problem with America's church today is they don't deal with depravity and they just tell everybody how great Jesus is well it's depravity it's the understanding of what God has done that makes him so glorious that he could save us and so we're going to spend a couple of weeks studying on that now here's the challenge often when we hear messages about sinners (laughs) it's easy to think about someone else Today, this morning, I want you to pray and ask God to think about yourself. Do not when something comes into mind, and of course, we all have people who want to be saved and to know this truth, but I want you to think about yourself. And here's why. As I look back in my life, even long after I had salvation, the times where I studied the depravity of man, my own depravity, where I understand, understood how difficult my life was outside of Christ, dead in my sins, away from God, and that God did a miraculous work to save me is where I experienced some of the greatest growth. And so I want you to concentrate on that today. Think about this. As we study depravity, think about what God did in, with you. Understand these principles for yourself. Certainly pray for others. But let's think about this in our own eyes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in the Word It is so precious to us. We we cannot exist without your word, Lord, anymore. All other words are fainting. Most of them are lies. But not your word. Not yours, Lord. Yours is true. Yours is inerrant. It's infallible. And all that you say is right, Lord, and good, And so even when we deal with our depravity, particularly before salvation, and recognize where you have brought us from, Lord, this is good for us. It makes the sweetness of the gospel even more sweet. It makes us sing all the more louder. It makes us long for heaven all the more when we rejoice of what you've done in our lives. So Lord, we pray that this truth would pierce our hearts And you would give us strength. Father, thank you for being with us today. We pray for those who can't be in this room with us. Many are watching online, recovering, going through different medical problems. Lord, I pray you would just strengthen them, cause them to know you are with them, Lord. Father, I pray for those who are in the hospitals, those who have procedures coming. Lord, I particularly pray for those who have lost loved ones. Lord, since the first of the year, that's been difficult, Lord. And so pray for them. Wrap your arms around them. Comfort them. Help us to know who they are and to care for them and walk, through, walk with them through these difficult times. Lord, thank you that we can fall into the arms of the great God of comfort. And you're there for us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I begin this message with a statement. And let me give you a little understanding of the statement. As I began to do my study on depravity... ...to get my mind straight... ...I sat at my computer and put on a dictation... ...and then dictated this to myself... ...of my current position in Christ. So before I went back to go study on... ...what I was like before salvation... ...I wanted to remind myself of who I am in Christ. So if you're a believer... I'm 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 writing in first person because I wrote this to myself. Put yourself in this, okay? And listen to our position in Christ. Then we'll get to the bad news, okay? All right. Scott's position currently. I am completely forgiven. And there is no condemnation that will ever fall upon me from God. I stand holy, blameless, and beyond reproach in the presence of God. Completely reconciled to him through his son. I've been adopted into his family and given the privilege to call him Abba Father. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And I have have a place at the Father's table for all of eternity. The Father will always see me dressed in his Son's righteousness. And he chooses never to bring up my sins that he himself has removed as far as the east is to the west. I am now freed from slavery, the slavery of sin and have now become, by the grace of God, a slave of righteousness. I receive God's own Spirit, who immersed me and identified me in the Lord Jesus Christ. My Heavenly Father is watching over me, and His ear is attentive to me. I can walk into His presence at any time through prayer, and He is acquainted and intimately involved in all my ways. I expect His angels to come and get me in death, or his son and his angels to gather me collectively with the church. My salvation is guarded and protected by God himself, and his son even now prepares a place for me so that where he is, I will be with him. I am completely assured of my salvation because it rests on the finished work of Christ, not on my works. God granted me the gift of faith and grace for salvation and life apart from any of my own works or even my own choice. God is ever conforming me to the image of his son in this life. But my eternal position is complete in Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. I just sat down. I just wanted that fall. I could have kept going longer. I said, well, I got to cut this off because they're going to all fall asleep. This is, that's who I am in Christ. Now, that's not always the case. Here's who I was before. And this is much shorter because I'm going to deal with this in the text today. And as we see, we begin to understand, I, Scott Menas, was born in sin. And I was dead in my relationship to God. I was willfully ignorant of God's glory and even hostile to his name. I was by nature a child of wrath, just as everyone else born in the world. I had no right, no choice, no goodness, nothing in and of myself worthy of salvation. I was a dead man walking. Pre-salvation. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you're a student of the Word of God you probably heard passages coming out of that statement, right? You were thinking of verses. That's all I was doing. I was thinking of the great truths of scriptures that are given, and I just began to write from my heart what I believe. And this is what the Bible teaches us. Well, this is what makes true worshipers. True worshipers are people who know that God did a miracle. He awoke the dead. He gave us the great illustration of Lazarus, didn't he? John chapter 11, come out. (laughs) He he didn't need to do that for his own. He said he did that for those who would see, right? He showed he has the power over death. And we're going to prove over these next couple of Sundays here as we start this series that we were dead in our sins, but that couldn't stop God. And we're going to look at our depravity from every angle. We're going to look from our emotions and our position and who we are and our upbringing. We're going to look at every angle and realize over and over we were dead. And we had no spiritual life. We had flatlined. There was no response. And we needed the grace of God. We needed him to give us faith and grace to believe. And he did a miraculous work. Well, this great text in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3... ...is going to be our text we're going to look at. But it lies, of course, within the book of Ephesians. Oh, we love the book of Ephesians, don't we? We find such great things in there. And I thought about some just overall kind of statements of Ephesians. One of the great themes is the unifying work of Christ. Christ has this great unifying work. He does so many things that remind, remind us in this passage... He has a restoring work. Man's fallen, they're they're out of relationship with God, they're dead to God. And and he has this restoring work this book teaches us. It teaches us that he smashes down the barrier between people, right? Between Jew and Gentile, right? Or, Or between families or whatever it may be. He has the ability to smash the barriers between people. The book reminds us that he can span this great chasm between God and man. I mean, boy, we're going to talk about this as we go on today, this holiness of God in the sinfulness of man. Just completely separated in the fall in Genesis 3. Christ spans that. This great book reminds us. And he breaks down, he shows us that he breaks down all the obstacles which divides humanity from, being, from him uniting everything to himself. What a tremendous book. This is why Paul refers to um, this great work of Christ in chapter 1, verse 19. He says this, the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. Surpassing greatness. Span chasms. Break down barriers. Take dead people and make them alive. Oh, that's the greatness of God, isn't it? And this this is a, just an overarching theme as you study this book. Of course, in chapter 1, just we'll get to this in the coming weeks as we continue to deal with salvation. Anyone who understands the great doctrine of salvation, we we really enjoy the first 14 verses or so of Ephesians. And there we're reminded that we were not some spiritual mistake or we somehow stumbled or chose our way into God, but that God knew us from the foundations of the world. He he wasn't going to miss us. Christ reminds us of these great truths. He says, all that you give me, Father, I'll lose none of them. What great hope we see in this predetermined future that God has for us. We realize in that first chapter that we have all the resources we need. You have everything you need to live this life with great joy in even difficult times because Christ is with you and he's accomplished these things. See, this is what makes Paul pray the way he prays. Verse 18, I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory in the inheritance of the saints. He wants us to understand these great truths and what a joy it is to grasp them. However, we will never understand or, or even grasp the victory that we have of our, in, over sinful problems till we marvel in worship at the great plan God laid out to save dead people. <laughs> That's when you begin to marvel. And until we grasp that lost state and That absolute impossibility for man to do anything to rescue himself or even change himself will never really worship the way God has designed us to. R.C. Sproul used to say this all the time. He used to say, the gospel is only good news when you understand the bad news. (laughs) We've heard him say that, haven't we? He's standing with the Lord right now. See, the gospel is really good news when you understand the bad news. See, this is the problem in the church today, right? They, they teach them in their so-called seminaries, don't touch on sin. You want to empty your church, teach on sin. And so all kinds of people think, oh, well, Jesus is a really good idea. He was a good guy. And so I better have a little Jesus with me and put him in my back pocket. And, and look what he's all done for me. I get this, I get this, I get this. And they never deal with sin. And so everything is about me, 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 me. we don't create worshipers when we teach the doctrine of depravity true saved people worship because we are brought face to face with the darkness and the deadness of who we were before christ that's why we teach this great doctrine and so let's this morning tiptoe our way. We're going to use Ephesians chapter, three, chapter 2, 1 through 3. And we're going to look at those verses. And we're going to bounce around scripture. And we're going to try to look at depravity at several different angles. I can guarantee you I'm not going to get through the notes. So don't get scared. Um, we're going to come back next week. This is a big subject. And listen how big the subject is. It starts in Genesis 3 with the rejection of Adam and Eve rejecting God's word... And it goes all the way to Revel- Revelation 22, which is all the way into the, the great kingdom of God. But in those last few verses, there's this warning of the sinful rejection or changing God's word. Don't touch my word. Right at the very end of the Bible, he points out the sinfulness of rejecting God's word. And so it's a huge, a huge subject, isn't it? We call it harmartiology is the doctrine of sin. And so really, that's what we're working our way into. But we're going to use this text and jump in and out a lot of places and see what we can learn today. Number one, the scriptures are saturated with the doctrine of total depravity, or you might call it total inability. We have no ability on our own to come to God. Well, there is a deep-seated corruption of the nature of man. Mankind has a deep-seated corruption. And this corruption or total depravity began in the garden. It began when Adam and Eve rejected the word of God. And at this point, mankind naturally falls under the wrath of God. Look at in verse 3 with me. We'll, we'll jump around in here a little bit. Notice at the very end of verse 3, in this statement, so many people struggle with this statement. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We're by nature children of wrath. Well, the nature of man now at the fall becomes opposite of the nature of God. Do you understand that? Before, before they fell, they, they had a like-minded nature with God. God had created them in this image. They were holy. They were without sin. And God warned them of that. And they had this beautiful relationship. And, and now we have a God who has a perfect holiness. He's absent of evil and sin. And now we have humanity. That now his nature has shifted from holiness to depravity. And when Adam and Eve sinned, every aspect of them fell. And every aspect of their seed, you and me, fell with them. And that's depravity. That's the explanation, part of the explanation of depravity. So death entered just as God promised. Remember in the garden just in chapter 2, chapter 2 of Genesis is such a great chapter because it's kind of the commentary of of the day 6, right? God creates all the animal world and so forth and and he creates man and he breathes life into him because he was lifeless without the breath of God. We'll see that later in Ephesians chapter 2. God breathes life into man. Um, And there he shows him in the garden that there's nothing like him. And then he brings them to these trees. And he says, look, there's a tree of life here and there's a tree of good and evil. And he says, stay away from this. I want your nature to remain like mine. You don't need to know evil. You need to trust me and walk with me. Reject that. Of course, Satan has fallen by now. He hates God. He certainly hates man. And he is after man. And there it did not take long till his temptation came and man said, oh, I want to be like God. He already was. Satan duped him. And there when he bit into that fruit, he lost that purity. He lost that holiness and all of humanity fell with him. In Romans, Paul picks us up so beautifully He helps explain this, what took place, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin, sin entered into the world. Man, you can, whatever that fruit was, he he bit into, man, sin entered the world right there. At that point, depravity plowed all of mankind. And it overtook us like a dark cloud. And Paul says, just as through one man sinned into the world and death through sin, death came. All men died at that point. You can say, well, he was very much alive. He died spiritually. He died spiritually. Adam and Eve no longer had spiritual response to God. They flatlined. There was nothing there. This one is now unresponsive. That's you and I. And here Paul reminds us that this death came through sin and death spread to all men because all sin. And you say, well, that's not fair. Okay, well, you be perfect and you'll not be part of this. Well, there we all went out. So our sin proves that we sinned with Adam because nobody outside of the Lord Jesus Christ has lived perfection. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, be perfect as I am. Go ahead. If you can be perfect, you can enter the kingdom of God. And so we realize that we fell with Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says, As through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. King Solomon, he had witnessed the sin of himself and the sin of mankind. And he speaks of depravity much in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7, 29 says this, Behold, I found only this. The wisest man in the world says this, I found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many evil schemes. The wisest man who needed a future salvation through Jesus Christ, had to put his faith that God would save him, said, God made them perfect, but man chased evil. See, man has always blamed his environment, haven't they? Often you'll hear the world say, well, if this people didn't live here, they wouldn't be the way they are. And if we could just give more money here, they wouldn't be the way they are. And if, and if your parents didn't do what they did, you wouldn't be the way you are. So everybody just blame shifts everything on, right? And it's my environment. If I can change my environment. Lord, if I was only a millionaire, I wouldn't have the problems I have. Right? Change my environment. Some of us like that. But that's not true. I love Martin he was he was writing on... He was teaching a a sermon on um, how we uh, how the world will reject. Well, if I was not like if I was Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been different. If my circumstances were different, I would be different, and so forth. And he says this to that. He says the terrible and tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all men's trouble are due to his environment, and that to change the man, you have only to change his environment. This is a tragic fallacy, he says. It overlooks the fact, now listen to this, that it was in paradise that man fell. (laughs) It doesn't get any better than the Garden of Eden pre-fall. And yet man could not save himself. He could not reject sin. And so he falls into abject depravity. The scriptures are clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the psalmist in Psalms 130 verse 3 says this... If you, Lord... I love this verse. It's, it's telling, isn't it? If you, Lord... You can hear a psalmist in prayer pleading with God. If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Lord, if you mark all the iniquities... If yet you hold us to... If there's no forgiveness of sin... Who would ever stand in your presence, the psalmist says. See, that teaches us there's a deep depravity within us. We're lost people. Second thought this morning. The deep-seated depravity of our fallen nature becomes the object of God's wrath. The deep-seated depravity of our fallen nature becomes the object of God's wrath back to verse three again as you get to the end of that verse it says we're by nature children of wrath even as the rest isn't that interesting do you like the way he puts that little phrase on the end of that even as the rest see there's always that guy or gal that says whoa 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 scott you're talking about some pretty bad stuff here that's not me i'm not under the wrath of god i you know, I drive 50 by Riverbend, not because there's a cop that hides behind the sign. I've paid my taxes. I've never had a ticket. You know, there's always that person that says, I'm not like everyone else, but here Paul does this so well, doesn't he? He says, we were all under the wrath of God, even as the rest, all mankind falls under it. He does this particularly well in Romans chapter 3, right? There are none righteous. <laughs> always that guy. I don't know who he's talking about. A bunch of sinners in here. See, he's reminding us that depravity has spread out to all men and depravity brings the wrath of God. It is, it is contrary to his holiness. His holiness must react to sin. And that's the wrath of God. A couple of weeks ago I defined it this way. Said God's de- the wrath of God is God's divine, judicial, perfect judgment of sin. It's God's divine, judicial, perfect judgment of sin. And it encompasses all of humanity before salvation. So that's one of the things I wrote, in, and as I opened that up and talked about my position in Christ, is I will never see the condemnation, the judgment of God fall upon me because Christ took that for me. And so God is righteous, and God is just, and people say, well, wait a minute, how are you not going to be judged? Oh, I was judged. I was judged by the full weight of God, but Christ stood in my place and took that. Two people in heaven, excuse me, two people in eternity. clarify that. Two people in eternity. Those who have had the judgment of wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ on their behalf, in those who will take the wrath of God for the rest of eternity. That's all exists. There is no in between. And this is what we see us deserving before salvation. So the wrath of God, we might call it the law inevitability of consequences. Inevitable, excuse me, inevitable consequences. God must deal with it. He can't just say, "Oh, maybe I'll let this one go." He wouldn't be a holy and righteous God. I think so many people think of the wrath of God, they think some lightning bolt. I think that's so far from it. It, What a cheapened view of God. Change your view of God. See how glorious he is. See how perfect he is. See how he sits in perfection, in holiness. See his angels around the throne crying out, Holy, holy, you are without sin, you are perfect. And to say that God's wrath is a lightning bolt. It's a mockery. This is God in his perfection reacting judicially perfectly against those things that are unholy. And brother and sisters, those believers in here, you and I were that before salvation. We deserve the full wrath of God. It is God's perfect holy nature reacting to sin. This This sin of ours, this sinful state we were in, or you may still be in, is 100% contrary to the perfect character of God, and it demands a response. So sin must be judged perfectly. See, that's the difference. Sin must be judged perfectly. You end up in front of a judge, I'm not sure if you'll get perfect judgment. But you end up in front of God, you get perfect judgment. And isn't it beautiful? What makes me sing as I sang this morning down there? My Lord Jesus perfectly took my judgment for me. I didn't deserve it. I was the one dead in my sins, and He died in my place, and rose again to show I was forgiven. See, that's what the great book of First, Second Corinthians tells us in Second Corinthians chapter five. Remember that phrase, verse twenty-one. He who knew no sin became sin for me. See, he became sin for me. All of that depravity, all that deadness, all those dead works, and all that sin, Christ took upon himself, and God concentrated his wrath on his son. See, that's the gospel. He took our depravity in a sense. And in a sense, made it his own. And maybe you could say it this way. In a sense, made it his own so God could direct all of his judgment towards him. And he would take all of it in our place. That's how bad depravity is. That the king of kings, the creator Christ, had to come to this earth to take that full wrath for us. See, depravity is an awful thing. It reminds us of what our Savior had to go through one might say i wasn't around when adam sinned so why am i a sinner maybe <laughs> and i struggle with it right because everything is measured to somebody else right that's that's the way the world acts and christians can do this too we need to be careful of this we look at somebody else and we judge our what we think is our holy nature according to somebody who's worse But it doesn't take long when you get into the scriptures that we begin to see over and over that every intent of the heart is wicked. We'll show you that passage in a minute. But by the time you get to Genesis 8, verse 21, the Bible says this, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. David, in his great confession of his sin with Bathsheba, Psalms 51, 5 says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Now listen to this, how far it goes back. And in my sin, my mother conceived me. that's a great statement. It's it's one of those you go, my sin, I became a sinner at conception. So one thing that tells us where life begins, right? But it also tells us our depravity doesn't go back to the age seven when all of a sudden I go, oh, hey, I shouldn't have stole that candy bar. We're born in depravity. We're conceived in depravity. There is nothing good in us. I think it's a fallacy to think, you know, that our children are are perfect or some way. They're good in some way. My mom used to call us all the time, "How are my little angels doing?" They're falling. <laughs> pray for them. I, I'm a grandparent now, and I'm kind of swinging the pendulum, you know, because <laughs> they're so cuddly and so great. Oh, but I pray for little Oliver. And my next grandson that's coming. Oh, God, save them. They're going to be born in sin. They need you. See, this is the state of it. Just a little farther in Psalm 58.3, the Bible says this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These whom speak lies go astray from birth. See, it goes all the way back. All the way back in our history of conception. Again, King Solomon, Ecclesiastes, speaking on private man, says this: Chapter nine, verse three. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to death. Pretty well sums up the human life. Born in sin, live in sin, die in sin. If you don't have Jesus, that's life. That's what happened with the fall. This is why depravity is so devastating. Look with me at John chapter 3 real quick. John chapter 3, we know this passage. Nicodemus is sneaking his way over to to Jesus at night. He doesn't want to be seen with him. He would be ashamed of Jesus at this point. And let's look at his theology of depravity. It's not very good. But Christ is going to fix it. John chapter 3, verse 5. He's already trying to figure out, hey, I think I've done everything good from my youth, but I need you to assure me that I'm going to get in the kingdom of God. Because you might be the Messiah. I'm not sure you are, but if you are, I want to make sure I can get in. I've done all these things. So Jesus says to him, truly, truly, verse 5. This is a super true statement, which Jesus always speaks true. I say to you, unless... One is born of water in the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless God has done the miraculous cleansing work of your dead, darkened, black soul, and the spirit of God has come upon you and immersed you in me, is what he is saying here in greater language here, you can't go to heaven. And here's why. Verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Stop there. Bible is clear you go go track down the word flesh and in most cases in most references you're gonna find the word death with it flesh is death live in your flesh die in, die in your flesh so right here Jesus says you're if you're born of flesh you you're hosed you're gonna die and you're not going to the kingdom of God see flesh is flesh if you're born of the flesh it's flesh But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's something unique. There's something different. And then he goes on to help him understand this. Do not be amazed that I said this. You must be born again. Nicodemus, you think that you're good enough in this first life of yours. This fallen, depraved, fleshly life that you can gain this kingdom. That's going to die. You need a new birth, a new life, so you can spend eternity with me. Isn't that amazing? that's what he's telling him. See this is why for centuries Christians have been talking about being born again. Because our first birth was dead. <laughs> we need to be born again. We need the work of the spirit of God. We need to be cleansed cleansed of our filth. We need life of the breath of God to give us life. To help us To be able to love him and to obey him and to walk with him and to worship him, we can't do that on our own. Everything else is false. It can be mustered up and, and you can get emotionally carried away at times, but there's no true worship. There's no true worship until you've been born again. You must experience new birth. There's nothing in us. Think about this. There's nothing in us That can stand in the presence of a holy God without regeneration and a new birth. We're dead in our sins. We're dead. That brings me to my third point. Depravity creates a deadness towards God. Depravity creates a deadness towards God. Well, this deadness towards God is a condition completely beyond human recovery. Look at verse 1. You know this verse well, right? And you, all of you, 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 me, me here, were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead in a trespasses and sin. Look at those nouns there that, that uh, help explain this deadness. We, we trespass against God. Romans chapter two, 2, verse 15 is very clear, right? We know it. God wrote his moral law upon us hearts. Man knows when they're wrong. We did not have to teach our children to say No. It just came naturally. Now, You know, this comes out of them, right? They didn't have to teach them how to hit their brother. Okay, when you get mad, really slug him. Well, we're like, well, where did that come from? Son. That came right from that fallen, dead heart that we all have. We have to teach them things of God. We have to teach them what God wants of us. And we have to show them the gospel because if we don't show them the gospel, they'll just try to be legalistic all their life and die in their sins. And so the Bible tells us, look, we're trespassed against God. You've transgressed him. You've, you've moved against what he clearly said not to do. Don't eat. And you'd eat. You ate right away. And you're ashamed and you hid and you blamed it on someone else. See, it shows our depravity. Look, spiritually dead people don't hear spiritually alive truths. You know this, don't you? Every one of us have family members, uh, close relatives, co-workers that we want to see come to Christ. There's times you sat down and clearly articulated the gospel to them. You have showed them, you've given them verses, you've prayed for them, and it has all fallen on deaf ears. See, they're dead. Dead men don't hear don't see, don't comprehend. We could take a little field trip this morning if you want. We could grab Norm Black and say, take us down to your mortuary. And there we could go down and pull back the cover of a body that's there. And I could say, preach the gospel to him. And you could bring your best stuff. (laughs) And he's not getting off the table. I know that's an extreme illustration, but that's what the Bible's saying we, before salvation, are dead. There is no spiritual response. There's no pulse. There's no desire for God. That's what depravity did for us. See, this makes salvation great because God awoke in me. He breathed life into me, even just like Lazarus. Come out of that dead tomb, Scott. <laughs> I'm calling you. Oh, okay. And we come to him. With nothing in our hands, empty-handed, we bring to him, waddling along in our grave clothes that we were born in. And he pulls all that away, and we are alive. Dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. See, our sin is is a response of our spiritual dead position. Every time we sin outside of Christ, when we're not believers, you, you show that you're dead metaphor in this picture is so descriptive, isn't it? If someone was lying dead here, I've used this illustration before, if we could not say to that person, well, you probably should call 911. Good luck. (laughs) Uh, You know, do you know CPR? Because you should give it to yourself. It's foolish, isn't it? And yet we kind of mock the doctrine of depravity and doctrines of grace sometimes, or some people do. Because, see, we want to have a role. We want to have a role. It makes us feel a little better that we could say, well, maybe I'm not dead dead. I'm just a little bit dead. So that's what Pelagius taught. Pelagius was a, an errant church leader in the early church. He came and said, well, because God made us in his image... It he made us good, that there's, there's still good in us, and there's good separates from evil, and so we can choose God in our goodness. They threw him out of the church because they couldn't prove any of that from the scriptures. And Now they're semi Pelagius, Because most Christians today are, people will go, well, yeah, no, there's too many verses that say we're really bad. So we can't say there's goodness in us, but... But maybe somewhere in us, God left some room for us to make a choice for him. Then he regenerates us and we can be saved. This is the free will argument. The Bible says there are none good, no, not one. There are none righteous, no, not one. All of our works are filthy rags. They're dead, 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 dead people don't make choices. See, this is what makes our salvation so glorious because I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't call 911. I didn't resuscitate myself. I didn't say, hey, help. God did all of that. And he pulls me out of that grave and gives me life. See, that's why depravity is such an important thing to teach on. I promise you when you get your mind around this, you will worship like you've never worshipped before. Because you'll see yourself deserving of that grave. Deserving of that, the death that comes with sin. You'll see yourself deserving of eternal hell. And you'll say, wow, he didn't give me that. He didn't give me what I deserved. He could have left me dead. And he's perfect in all that he does, right? All that he does. He is perfect. This is the doctrine of salvation. Salvation. Paul just lights up the scriptures with this stuff, doesn't he? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions. And then he adds this. In the uncircumcision of your flesh. So not only are you dead, you're disease ridden. It just gets worse, doesn't it? (laughs) You're not only dead, you're disease ridden. And hang on, mom's and dad's. You're probably spreading it. That's the idea, the intensity of that statement. That's dead people who don't know Jesus. But then our beloved apostle says, but he made you alive together with him and having forgiven a couple of your transgressions. Somebody correct me. All of them. He forgave them all. (laughs) From conception to eternity, he forgave my sins. Isn't that beautiful? Look with me at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is a passage that some in the free will camp think is theirs. I'm going to prove it isn't. You know this passage is a beautiful one. He's been walking down in what we call the prologue to the gospel of John. It is probably some of the greatest statements of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power to save and create and own light and darkness and know whose are his and who are not. ...shows what he went through in verse 11. He came to his own and his own just rejected him. In fact, they had him killed. But then he says, as, but as many as received him... ...and right there's a lot of people say, oh, look, 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 look. I received him and this is what I get. I received him. But nowhere in the Bible does receiving come with some kind of debt or something. Receiving is always a gift... And so look at it this way. But as many as received him, here's why they received him. Because God had made them his own children. To as many as received him, to them he gave. The receiving ones got something with no strings attached to it. They became children of God. Look at that. There's, there's nothing in them that they could have Chose we we've proven over and over, and we're not done. We're going to work on that today and next Sunday as well. So there's nothing good in us that we could somehow receive God on some merit of choice or goodness. But these receiving ones, they receive the right to become the children of God. God gave it to them. Look at the main verb. He gave. You should circle that in your Bible. It doesn't say they got because they chose. It says he gave them. This is in line with Scripture. For by grace you've been saved. It's a gift of God not of man, lest he stand before him someday and boast, hey, I'm here because I chose you, right? He gave it to him to become children of God, even, and here's it identifies, even to those who believe in his name, and that word even is probably not in the original text, it's to those who believe in his name, so not just to everyone, it's it's to those he awakens to Jesus Christ. He gives them, and you go, well, how, how do you know? This kind of sounds like they could own this one too. We'll look at the next verse who were born, now we've got, new, remember, new birth, right? Not of blood. Pastors' kids don't get in free. Nope. My, my children, all of our pastors' children, all need to be saved by the grace of God and faith given to them. Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, meaning I'm just going to muster up strength. I'm going to go to Sunday school. I'm going to get a gold star on every line. Um, I'm never going to speed. Uh, <laughs> Not by the will of your flesh. And then look at this one. Nor of the will of man. Wait a minute. You can't will yourself. I say it this way. You've probably heard me if you've been around here for years. You cannot faith your way to God. I faith, I faith, I faith, I faith. And then what does the last phrase say? But of God. It is of the will of God, every one of you are saved. Now I think this is a precious truth. Think about this if it was just left up to you. Well, first of all, dead guy. You're not going to choose God because you're dead. See how glorious this is? God, in his infinite foreknowledge and predetermined in our future, chose us to be his children. Now that gives all the glory to God, and we rob none of it by saying, well, you know, I made a good choice that day. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I said said it. You know, I went down front. I did all these things. Gimme, gimme, gimme. No, he gives God all the glory. God, you raised a dead man in Scott. (laughs) He was lifeless towards you. And you breathed life into him. You made him anew. You set him free from slavery of sin. You did all that, and I praise you for all of eternity. Which do you want? You want the one to say, I did this? (laughs) Or do you want to just be overwhelmed by worshiping? Apostle Paul picks up on this. Romans chapter 9, verse 16, after, after showing systematically this truth, he says then, so then, after all this, he uses Pharaoh and Jacob and Esau and all these things. He says, so then, it does not depend on the, on, on the man who wills or the man who runs. You can't faith your way or run your way to God, but on God who has mercy. I don't know how many times I've met with everybody from cowboys to athletes to To all kinds of people. And I tell them this beg God for his mercy. And I'll tell you, someone who is not, God is not drawing to themselves, won't get on their face and beg God for salvation. You know, they're like, bathe in that. Nahum, right? And all all, the, you know, I'm going to go back to my, I'm going to go do my clean, I'm going to go to my clean place over here, and then maybe God will help me, right? No, no. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going, well, well, wait a minute, I I guess I have to be elect. I don't know if I'm going to make it in. You don't have any clue of that. That's God's job. You just crossed a line that doesn't belong to you. Here's your job. Get on your face and beg him for mercy. Because that's what we all did. When we realize we're sinners, look, you're not going, here, I got $5. I'll walk this. You're begging God for mercy. Once you know you are lost, you beg him for mercy. Oh, God, I know you don't have to save me, but I plead with you. That's the heart of a changed person. That's God granting faith for you to plead with God. And He's already done the regeneration work most of the time when you're at that point. Number four, need a little good news here. The greatest worship comes from the understanding of the comprehensiveness of total depravity. The greatest worship comes from it. That's what I'm trying to do through these couple first couple sermons is look at every angle. Of our depravity how lost we were because it really makes a great worshiper and you know what i I know we've all and we're going to sin again next time god makes you aware of your sin you may not get out of the building but next time it happens what are you going to do with it what what, what are you going to say to him Uh, let me just share a little prayer that i've said often as god exposes sin I'll say, um, maybe it's a sin of pride. Maybe I was a little arrogant, made an arrogant comment to somebody. And God made me aware of that. And I'll say, Lord, I want to confess right now, that arrogant, proudful statement I made is what nailed you to the cross. That's part of that dead life that you rescued me from. And I want your forgiveness. And I know you granted that to me in cross. Please forgive me. I don't want to be like that dead man that you saved. Forgive me for that, Lord. See, use biblical language. And it causes you to be so grateful that Jesus died and you start to have victory over sin. If you have a sin problem, a hidden sin problem, you're just like, well, Lord, sorry, sorry. Name it. Tell him that it put his son on the cross. Tell him that Christ died for that sin. Tell him that you see him hanging on that cross for you and you're grateful he did it. And ask him for victory over it. See, see that's depravity helps us worship there, doesn't it? We find such strength there. Look at verse 2. You guys go back to Ephesians. This shows us how deep it was. In which you formerly walked, you're dead, right? Your former life, you're walking around dead, you're dead men walking, right? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Ooh. According to the course of this world. I don't care if you're conservative or liberal. You're in the course of the world. Satan, he he loves working with dead people. They're very easy to maneuver around, right? So if you want to be conservative and go to hell, great. Be a conservative and go to hell. Boy, you better not pull that out of the tape. (laughs) You want to be liberal? Liberal. You want to hold all your views, and you'll go to hell that way. He loves to take dead people along the course of the world. This go that way, never find Jesus, but man, that'll be your heart, and that'll be your gospel, which you want to die on, and that guy or gal or whoever you follow or whatever, oh, he just set you on that course right away. Dead, dead, dead. We are in the world, but we are not of it. See, God made us alive and pulled us out of this dead world. And he says, look, that's how we used to be on this course of this world. We used to work, notice this next phrase, according to the prince of the power of the air. Well, who's that? It's Satan. It's the evil one. You know, when Satan takes Jesus up on the pinnacle and says, look, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all this. Well, he wasn't talking about the trees, the hills, rocks, and all that. All the creation belongs to God. He's talking about the course of this world the authority over the hearts and minds of the lost. That's what he's offering him. And so we're not a part of that, are we? And so he says, look, we used to be part of that. He used to be our father, right? He used to to tell us where to go and what to do. And notice he's still working of the spirit that is now, look at this phrase, I, I got this marked in my Bible, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Satan is hard at work in the world. He works with dead people. And you're alive. Don't work with him. Don't get caught up in the things of the world. We've been raised from those things. This is his system. And it's going to bring the judgment of God. That's why John reminds us in 1 John that we're not to love the world nor the things in the world. You know, remember he goes down through this list of things. You know, he says, of the love the world, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. That's kind of a scary statement, isn't it? See, alive people, we we don't love the things of the world. We appreciate what God has done. We go and watch our ocean right out here and just marvel that for thousands of years. Yep, the waves just keep rolling. They go to where God wants them. We're just amazed at it. But we're not in the system. So we don't love this world because the love of the Father is not in you if you love this world. See, that's dead people love the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Here he's going right back to these things that Paul talked about. The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These are not of the Father, but of the world. And then he says this, the world is passing away. You know, there's a day, and you can go read it. Revelations 19 and 20. God takes all of the people, dead people of the world, and he casts them into the lake of fire where Satan and his angels are. That's where that whole system is going. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in this stuff. See, this is what this, this is what Paul just is so grateful for. A couple of weeks ago, I had you in First Timothy chapter one, verse fifteen through seventeen, and there it says, "This is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance." That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Or, your, maybe some of the older tr- translations say, "Chief," I'm the chief sinner. See, one of the things we love about Paul is he does not forget where he was. He does not stay and dwell on it, right? I talked about this worm theology that some Reformed people have. I'm just no good. I'm dead in my sins. No, 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 no. But he does see the value of going back and saying, This is where I used to be. Oh, praise God. And listen to what he does. He says, Yet for this reason I was found mercy. Because I was the chief of sinners, he found mercy. Quit saying you're not as worse, you're as bad as somebody else. I think that's a great lesson there. Paul just goes, and certainly Paul wasn't the worst in the world, right? But see, that's his view of his sin. It's chief, it's the worst. And he says, for this reason I found mercy. I think that's a powerful theological thought there. Well, a lot of people who never get saved never saw the depth of their sin. Now let me tell you, As I got saved, when I was a young lad, got saved, I didn't see this completely. But as I've grown in sanctification, I've seen it more and more. I've seen the capability. I know where my thoughts, maybe I never did that sin, but I know where my thoughts could go. You all too? Ever had a dream that you wake up and go, holy wow, how'd that get in there? You realize the capability of who you are if it was not for God. And this is what Paul does. I was the chief of sinners And so I was shown mercy. And even for me, the foremost, the chief Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in eternal life. I think that's great. I tell people to witness this way. Don't go tell them a sinner. Tell them you were a sinner. Go tell them what God did for you. Go tell them that you are lost and you're dead in your sins and God has resurrected you and given you a new life. That's what Paul does. And then he just breaks out in praise. Now, to the king, immortal, invisible, only God to be honor and glory forever and ever. He just can't hold it. Well, that's as far as i got to get today. Oh, I haven't even scratched this. I mean, we gotta, we got to look at some more passages next week because I, I, I want to do one more week. Stay with me on this. Don't leave and come back the next week. We're going to get to the good news. But before I quit, I want you to put your finger on Ephesians two four. Because we're going to leave with this. I just remembered this. Ephesians 2, 4. What are the first two words? Somebody say it out loud. That's a lot of somebody's. But God. Oh, these, these fallen creatures, dead in their sins, helpless to save themselves. Their choice is dead. Their will is dead. Their flesh is dead. All dead, dead, dead. But God, the miracle worker, the raiser of dead people, <laughs> the glorious, victorious God brings faith and grants it to us through his grace. What an amazing statement. So I don't want you to leave today because I want you to come back because we've got another half of this to do on depravity to understand the greatness of God. And let this flow through you. As I close, listen to this. Go out of here. Tell the Lord that you are grateful that he raised you from the dead. Tell the Lord that. If you're not saved, you may not understand that. But those who are saved in here, tell them you're grateful he raised you from the dead. You might nickname yourself Lazarus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. and The word, we're overwhelmed with your goodness and kindness, Lord, when we study this doctrine of depravity. There's just nothing good in us, Lord. We had nothing to offer you. The old hymn writer said, empty-handed I come, simply clinging to you. He, just, he says what we know in the Scriptures. We just had nothing. And yet, God, by your mercy and grace, we stretch out a hand begging for your mercy, Lord. And you grant that, God. You grant that, and you've saved so many people down through the ages. And we become worshipers. And great as thy faithfulness. is, not the same anymore. It's, it's beautiful to us. We sing those words and, and we're reminded that God was so faithful when we were so unfaithful. And you remain faithful. And Lord, those in this room or watching or hear this in some way, who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, we are free from the entanglement of sin. We are free from the slavery that came with. And we have a position at the Father's table waiting for us. Lord, that's glorious. Thank you for taking dead men and breathing life into us. Lord, we praise you for this. Lord, thank you for this church. Lord, help us preach this glorious message till you come and get us. Lord, we pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.